Special thanks to Dragon Army for sponsoring this podcast. From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. So let me introduce today Molly Grantham. Molly is a two-time Emmy award-winning journalist who has been named TV News Reporter of the Year for both Carolinas, one of Charlotte's top 40 under 40, and one of Mecklenburg County's 50 most influential women. With over 100,000 followers, she is a leader in social media, anchors WBTV's 5.30 p.m., and solo anchors the 11 p.m. show, which is the number one rated show in the market. Molly, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you. I know you've actually got a lot more that you do. Uh, just give us a little more background about yourself. Well, I always say I'm an anchor author mom. So I am a journalist and um, I am anchoring the shows and reporting and I love doing all of my journalism. And I published a book about a year ago. It sold out on Amazon in the first week, which was awesome. And it's about real life, <laughs> real life, the juggle. It's called The Off-Camera Life of an On-Camera Mom, Small Victories. And then I am a mom. I've got two young kids. My eight-year-old is actually over here. This is my morning time. I'm in mom clothes in my own house. It's a complete disaster. So I'm here with my eight-year-old, just got the four-year-old off preschool and happy to be talking with you. I can't wait to check that out. I'm really looking forward to that. So, well, can you tell us a little more about your story and sort of how it relates to to coma and, and, and breast cancer? I definitely can. It's a cause huge, huge to my heart and people in the Charlotte area, I think, can know that by now. My mom died of breast cancer a year and a half ago. Maybe it's two years now, which is crazy to think. Um, And she had been diagnosed a second time. So my whole life, she was a survivor. And then my grandmother was a survivor. When I was seven years old, I remember her getting uh, a mastectomy. Hmm. I remember the the silver raw staples on her breast. She she lifted her shirt one time to show me and my younger girl cousin, even though we were very young, she thought uh, knowledge is power and I'm going to show them it's part of our history. And that was before my mom was diagnosed, her daughter. So my mom had breast cancer, my grandmother had breast cancer, and my great-grandmother died of breast cancer. Okay. And so it runs in my family. I've had the BRCA test and, you know, knock on wood, I was negative. So it means I'm no more likely to get breast cancer than any other woman in America. But with one in eight, it doesn't necessarily find great comfort in that. And when I had my child, my daughter, uh, we didn't know if it'd be boy or girl. We never found out the sex. We were that couple. Wow. And I know. Um, so I just assumed to be a boy because I've got all brothers, even painted the room blue. And she was born and it was a girl. And I remember the nurse saying, it's a girl. And my husband said, we're gonna have to pay for a wedding. And <laughs> that was his first sentence, first sentence. But um, my first thought legitimately in that moment was, oh my gosh, breast cancer. Mm, and wow. so I had always been a part of the fight for and lived through it with my mom and history. But when I had a daughter, it really, really hit home. It really got, mm-hmm. and I had become a, a spokesperson for Coman Charlotte before right. I had Parker, right. my daughter. It has just taken on a whole new world since, I mean, my, my mission is I want to find a cure in my daughter's lifetime, period. Wow. I love that. Man, that's bold. I love bold too. That's great. So let's walk through a little bit of your experience, you know, with, I assume with your mother uh, about, you know, just supporting a loved one that's diagnosed with breast cancer. I think it's different for each person. And I think anyone listening to this, you can play it out in your own mind about that person and that family and who you are and what you can do and your age and your capabilities and your access to information. But I I truly feel like no matter who you are or who the person who is battling, 
might be the number one thing is having somebody there in doctor's offices with you. Okay. Again, I was 12 when she had it the first time or had a double mastectomy the first time. So she had other support networks than her 12 year old daughter. It was more her protecting me and my brother. Right. So as she was diagnosed again, six years ago now, and she passed away two years ago. So, you know, I was older, my brother was older and she would go to the doctor's office when she first got the diagnosis. She didn't know what it was. Um, it was metastatic breast cancer that had, um, metastasized into her lymph nodes. So she just didn't feel good. Right. And she was getting a checkup and she went and she didn't know the result was going to be, this is what it is. So the first visit she was there, she got information, but she couldn't relay it to mm. us as her family um, because it was like, well, it's this is this. And she knew the diagnosis, but she didn't really know what comes next because the doctor I know had said that they had said options or they said, this is what we're looking at. Right. But she just zoned out. Right. And which makes sense. Most people do. Yeah. She didn't expect to get that news that day. So of course she wouldn't have been there alone, but she was. And so it was a really actually good baseline standard for us as we went forward, because every moment past that, every appointment past that one of us would go with her. Mm. And that got more information for the rest of the family. Right. And so I think sometimes support, people think like, oh, I should make a casserole. Right. You know, and that's helpful. Although you can also talk to people that say I have like 28 casseroles in my refrigerator now because I got sick last week. But right. I, it's very helpful to do things like that. But there's also just um, like facts and information that need to be relayed accurately. And so if it's like someone down the street, you obviously wouldn't be a good neighbor. You wouldn't be in the doctor's office with them. But if you ever hear someone is diagnosed that doesn't have a support network, like some, and they would never say, would you go to the oncologist with me? They would never say, can you go to the doctor? And that's the most important thing I think to ever, ever do ever. And, and take notes, right? I mean, that, that's, that, so right. it's not just the extra set of ears, but it's also taking down the notes so that the person that's actually dealing with it can deal with it in that moment. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I am a note taker by trade. I'm a journalist. I ask questions. I take notes. And I listen very, very well. I'm trained to do that and remember. And I forgot tons of things the doctor was saying and had to go back to my notes. Right. The human brain can only accept so many details at once. We, mm -hmm. we just, Let's just accept that limitation and take notes or, or mm -hmm. record it. I guess if the doctor's cool with an audio recording, you could do that too. But, uh, but definitely some kind of note taking, some way of, to capture that data, I think is critical. And when you take notes too, I, again, by trade have learned to take notes. So if I'm in a court case or I'm in a um, trial, I'm, I'm not just taking down what people say. I say like how they looked or the emotion on a face or what the tone of voice sounded like. And I did that naturally um, years ago with my mom's second diagnosis. And I remember going back, looking at those notes. I mean, I still have them. It's, it's an odd thing to have a sentiment, but it's um, a journal of sorts. And I, you know, taking notes on emotion too and tone is not a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's really helpful. So, so let's talk a little bit about tough subjects. You know, dealing with breast cancer, there are many tough subjects that have to be broached. When it's hard for both people to talk about them, do you have any advice on, on sort of how to get that conversation going? I don't like saying, how do you feel? Because everybody asks that and it's very easy for someone to be like, I feel good. Right. When the, when the obvious answer is terrible. Yeah, right. And I think letting someone know it's okay to feel gross, feel ugly, um, be yourself, to say I feel sick. Um, those are really important things. I never ask anybody yes or no questions because the answer you get is yes or no. Yes or no. <laughs> um, so always trying to sort of have open-ended questions, you know, like, is there something today you're thinking about that you'd rather talk about? Or mm. is there something today you're craving for food or um, your kids today, is there a way you need them to get picked up for this or that? 
I mean, they're just thinking specifics, right? Like think past the easy cocktail conversation. Think five minutes down the road of that conversation and start there. Because when you're sick, you don't feel like being nice. There's just so many other ways to ask questions besides yes or no, or how are you feeling? Yeah. Well, you know, I I like to ask the question in, in, in just sort of in general, if you could wave a magic wand and have something done, what would it be and why? And like, that's an interesting question to ask. And and they go, oh, well, I'd love my bathrooms clean. And you go, well, I can right. do that. You know, I can clean bathrooms. No problem. I got kids that can clean bathrooms. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. No, That's it's great. true. It's really good. And I, so I think supporting and just talking and letting people feel comfortable. If you have lost your hair and you have on a makeup and you have tubes coming out of your breasts and you just don't feel like yourself mm. or like a woman, it's very nice to talk to someone who also looks messy. Mm. Let yourself, if you are the support network, not come over looking prim and proper. If you're vulnerable, someone else feels more comfortable being vulnerable, especially with women. I I would have never thought of that, but that's brilliant. So I think putting yourself in the shoes of whoever it is you're trying to support, just be real. I mean, let's explore that just for a moment in terms of flexibility. It seems to me that if you are someone's support network, the ability to be flexible and make adjustments and deal with changes is critical. And so can you just talk a little bit about sort of the mindset that it takes to do that well? I mean, to be very honest with my mom, I was flexible in my schedule and I made the machine of life work to be there for her. Right. And I was certainly comforting, I think, in my tone to her. But I don't know if like almost it's easier to be softer and more flexible in the conversation and the flow of things with a stranger, yep. at least for me, than it is with someone you know really well. And so, um, you know, it's my mom and I love her and she loved me and I'm her only daughter. And so it was almost easier to be like, just mom, come on, like get it together or mom, right. be quiet. I'm talking to the hospice nurse right now. You know, right. like we like whereas if I would never say, please be quiet. I'm talking to the hospice nurse to any stranger. Right. <laughs> so I think the flexibility sometimes in your own mind, you have to check yourself a little more when it is someone you love. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely true for everybody. We tend to be more abrupt with those that we're the most comfortable with. And that's not always the best thing. And you mentioned sort of open and honesty, like what are some of the best ways to stay open and honest with each other about feelings and expectations? Um, I just think it depends on the person. And I'm not just basing this on my personal family experience. It is um, a lot of women in the Charlotte area. I've sort of known with being the spokesperson for Come in Charlotte. We do a race for the cure with 20,000 people in Uptown Charlotte first Saturday in October. Yeah, it's the biggest 5K in Charlotte. Every year always is. Team Molly is the biggest team. We're very proud of it. But there's hundreds and hundreds of teams, small groups, big groups. It's just an awesome experience. And through that and being a part of that, I think for 11 years now, I've met a ton of fighters Mm. and not all women, actually, it's easy to say women, but you know, one in 1000 men are diagnosed and one in eight women. So there are are male breast cancer fighters and warriors and survivors as well. That's right. So I've met a lot of people who battle this and some are like an open book, right? So my mom was an open book, but I'm not just basing this on my mom. There are many others who are guarded Mm -hmm. and I have found there's actually quite a disparity of breast cancer. This is an anecdotal thing that I'm saying, and I say this based on interviewing big groups of people. It's not just like a Molly thinks it, but I've interviewed big groups of people, Um, white women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, black women, Hispanic women. And there is a real struggle that black women will say to not air their dirty laundry. I'm again, generally speaking, but the sport networks for 
white women that I meet are big because they'll talk about it. And it's harder for women of color to talk about I have found, and again, this is from what they say, because they've been raised to not air your dirty laundry, take care of other people. And a problem that all women have is, you know, take care of other people, don't worry about yourself. But very much so when when there's just not as much education in that community or insurance issues in that community or medical like mammogram mobiles going into those communities. It's just a different sort of mindset. And so what I have found through talking to all different ages of women, all different walks of life is you, it's that person. So you could be an open book and give you too many details on like exactly how it felt when, you know, things are dripping out and how you feel this way or other women that are like, it's fine. And, and they're at stage four and they wouldn't say a peep because they don't want to put their problem on you. And so there's, depending on the community and the person and the woman or man, as it might be, it's very important to just sort of try and get them to talk about because someone's testimony could help save someone else's life. It's a beautiful thing. I did this just two months ago. Um, big, awesome, beautiful church outside of Charlotte and Matthews. A uh, pastor's wife has been diagnosed and she told her whole story on the pulpit. And so many people, hundreds of women afterwards were like, well, I'm going to go get checked. Yeah, that's critical. Right. Yeah. If you have a platform and you can talk about it and you want to talk about it in ways you feel comfortable, I think that can really help others. Yeah. And, and really, you know, several times you've said in this conversation, it depends on the person. And that kind of goes back to that flexibility. We, I think as people that want to support in these situations, we have to be flexible and understand the person that's been diagnosed and understand what their needs are and, and look to them to sort of guide us in how we can help them. Is that is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yes, Absolutely. I do want to go back to the, the different communities of women because, um, yes, some of what I'm saying is anecdotal based on women, but there is that there are studies now, and, and you might have seen these, Adam, but um, with the disparity of breast cancer and the headline of those studies, and these are fact-based, science-based studies, is that white women are more likely to get breast cancer. Non-white women are more likely to die from it. Yes, right. You know, that is... A lot of that could be DNA and genetics, and they're looking at different things about education. But a lot of that can also just be talking, yeah, sharing, you know, encouraging others to get mammograms and get checked. Right. I think some of the evidence on that has gone back to where white women tend to go to the doctor sooner, and therefore they get on a treatment plan more quickly, and therefore and have better survival rates versus uh, non-white women. That um, that's a, a really important fact for us to be aware of. Uh, Molly, do you have any final thoughts to either people that are that are dealing with breast cancer or have loved ones dealing with breast cancer? Any final thoughts you want to share? Just follow your gut. It's a nasty disease. There's different levels and there's going to be different cures. There's so many different types of breast cancer. My mom, you know, died of breast cancer in her lymph nodes, wasn't even in her breasts anymore. She'd had those removed 20 years prior. So we all know someone. Yeah. We all do. And you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in this country that doesn't know somebody that has had breast cancer. You know, do what you think is best because your gut on that is probably going to be right. I love that. Well, Molly, this has been super amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Um, and for anybody that's listening right now that wants more information about breast cancer or how you can help and get involved, please make sure to check out Komen.org for all kinds of resources and information. Uh, Molly, thanks so much for being on the show. Good talking to you, Adam. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com. 
Special thanks to Dragon Army for sponsoring this podcast. Because inspiring happiness is at the center of everything Dragon Army does, this full-service digital agency is dedicated to building remarkable products and experiences for its partners. Dragon Army's team of experts create powerful experiences that deepen emotional connections and amplify impact in the core areas of web, mobile, content, and branding. Whether you're a Fortune 500 or a small to medium-sized company, Dragon Army is able to support your business needs. To learn more about this purpose-driven digital agency, head to dragonarmy.com slash Komen. That's D-R-A-G-O-N-A-R-M-Y dot com slash Komen.